uh, walked the earth uh, with, his, uh, with his disciples, he would tell them something. If you ever read the Gospels, there would be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, they're kind of the beginning of the New Testament. And you'll, you'll hear Jesus say something quite often. There's something he repeats over and over again. And it's the idea he would tell his disciples, hey, the Father sent me. The Father sent me. Especially if you read the Gospel of John, you'll hear Jesus say this a lot. The Father sent me. The Father sent me. And he'll talk about things like the Father sent him to accomplish the work. And you're like, what's, what's the work? You've got to keep reading, right? Um, the, the Father sent me to, um, to do the work. He sent me not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Uh, the Father sent me to bear witness. The Father sent him so that we would know God. The Father sent Jesus so that we would love God. Uh, the Father, Father sent Jesus so that we would believe God. Um, this is all kind of mission language, okay? This is, uh, Jesus was sent on a mission from heaven, and the last time he would, he would say it, he would turn to his followers, and here's what he would say. So he'd said the whole time throughout the Gospels, Father sent me, Father sent me, and then he ends by saying this. John, the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 21. As the Father has sent me, he said, even so, I'm sending you. So he turns it on them. He's like, okay, I've been showing you. I've been talking about this. I've, told, I've, told, I've been showing you how I've been sent by, by the Father. Now I'm, I'm ending, ending my mission, and I'm sending you on the same mission that I have been sent on. You say, what, is, what does that mean? What does that look like? How are we sent? You know, what is, it, what is this language? And to know that, we must study the life of Jesus. For we, as his followers, a Christian, little Christ, okay, we are following his mission, continuing his mission, uh, a mission to see others come to believe God, see people come to know God, see people come to love God. And the word we like to use a lot of times in theology and this kind of language, we use a word called incarnational. I know it's a, it's a word you may not be familiar with. Uh, it's a very Christmas-type word. You think about the incarnation of Christ, right? It's when God, what it is, is what we understand by that word is that God, in order to reach us, in order to come to us, didn't wait for us to go to him, Right? And he didn't send us an angel. He didn't send us a program. He didn't even send us a book necessarily. He sent himself, right? He, he came into our world. Jesus entered into our world to reach us. He lived among us, right? You go through the gospels. He ate with us. He rubbed shoulders with us. He talked with us. He served us. And he also didn't commute, you know, from heaven to earth each day, right? He came down, set up his pulpit, did his preaching thing, and then went back to heaven to, you know, sleep, and then came back the next day to kind of do some work and go back. No, he, he even slept right among us. He lived among us. Um, each day he did that. He didn't keep a distance from us. I told you before, he didn't, it's like he had a, a Captain America shield, you know, where he, deflect, he deflected broken, lost people away from himself. Like, you know, get away from me. You know, I don't want you to get anywhere close to me kind of thing. He didn't stiff arm, you know, like Derrick Henry would in, uh, in football. He didn't do that. I had to bring that up because it's Super Bowl Sunday, right? Even though he's not in it, but that's okay. Um, but Jesus didn't do that, right? He didn't stiff arm people away. He was all up in our business, in our kitchen, in our lives. Like he was right there, right? That was God, God incarnate. That's what we mean by incarnational. But you take that, you read, that's the life we're supposed to live, okay? That, that's what it means. We, as he was sent, so we are sent. But when you look at Christianity in America, you'd think Christians have, haven't really read their Bibles very much. I mean, we approach mission in the world and the lost much like the 5th century monk uh, Simeon Stylites, no relation to Harry Styles, by the way, um, he decided that, uh, uh, Simeon Stylites decided at age 13, age 13, he decided that joining a monastery was JV, right? It was JV Christian. Like, he wants to go varsity, and so he needed to separate himself completely from the world. 
He needed to go big or go home. And he was so bugged that he was in constant contact with sinners and he felt defiled by just having them around him that he did what most of us would probably logically do. He built a tall pillar, climbed up on top of it, and stayed up there for 36 years through inclement weather. This is a real dude. Like, this, this really happened. For 36 years, uh, they, would, they would sometimes bring food up. You know, he would sometimes come down for the occasional potty break, but that's it. Otherwise, he was, he was up there, and this was like holiness. This is what it, Jesus, this is what he was saying Jesus wanted him to do. And you're like, Jesus didn't do that, right? He didn't climb a tower and sit on top of it to stay away from people. He was in the midst of us, right? So much so that the religious people called Jesus a sinner, right? They called him, he's like, he's hanging out with all these broken people that you're not supposed to be hanging around. I mean, he got a, he got a bad reputation among the religious people for that reason. I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy, kind of funny, but in the end, it's kind of not, right? If we claim to believe the Bible, if we claim to follow Jesus, then we must not just know the words of Jesus. We must speak the words of Jesus. We must live the life of Jesus. And, and then this whole thing, when I'm talking about mission, I'm not necessarily talking about evangelisms. You may be using those words synonymously. I am not. Um, I'm talking about the word mission is very different. Evangelism, at least in the way we, we use it in our modern vernacular and kind of church culture, is very, it's very program-oriented, uh, event-oriented, uh, kind of that commute from heaven to earth-oriented, right? I drop in, say some words, drop out kind of thing. Being a missional church, adopting the mission of Jesus as a church, means we are relationally to be connected to unbelievers. We are to be on the ground, boots on the ground, as it were. We are to be adopting the mindset and posture of a missionary to our culture, the mindset and posture of Jesus himself. We're not building the field of dreams and hoping that they will come. We're not waiting for them to come to us. Just like, by the way, Jesus didn't wait for us to go to him because that wasn't going to happen, right? That wasn't going to happen at all. Instead, we, we go to them like Jesus came to us. As a father sent Jesus, so he sends us. Now, you may be sitting there today. You may not know Jesus, and you're going, wait a minute. What are you trying to do? <laughs> what, are you, what are you guys doing in here? Are you trying to convert me? Um, and the answer is yes, we are. Um, no bait and switch, no hiding behind it, right? We're very, very upfront. We, we love Jesus. We want you to love Jesus, okay? That is part of what we're here for. Um, if someone brought you today, um, it's because they love you and they care about you and they want you to join them in loving Jesus because he's just that awesome, right? Um, we don't want your money. We don't want your membership. We don't want your attendance record and neither does Jesus, right? We, we want you to know Jesus Christ. Now, don't be afraid of this whole converting language thing. Um, I know most of you are not afraid of that because I see your Facebook posts. You, you like to convert people uh, to what you're passionate about, what you love. So to say, I, I'm glad that you have Jesus, I'm glad you have that, but you need to keep that to yourself, right? Don't try to convert other people. Um, that's like saying to me, it's like saying to Chris, like, Chris, I know you love the Dodgers, but please, don't talk to me about the Dodgers. Don't talk to me about how they got robbed of two World Series by the cheating Astros and cheating Red Sox, right? <laughs> don't talk to me about that. And be like, well, that'd, that'd be like, sorry, I'm a little bitter about that one. Um, <clears throat> okay. Whew, got it together. Um, you know, but, but it'd be like saying, like, you know, don't be a fan, right? If you're a fan, you love, you share, right? And you want, here's the thing, when, and I'm going to come back to this at the end this morning. The things that you so love, you want other people to enjoy those things with you, right? You want them to share in that which you love because you delight in it so much. You love it so much. You want them, because you love them, you want them to love it too. So, 
for Christian, as a Christian, how are we sent out like Jesus? What does that look like? Um, what's the strategy, right? What's the practical side of this? In our text, we find Paul being very practical, um, talking about his kind of missional strategy, we'll call it, uh, for reaching the lost. And actually, it was the same as what Jesus was. You'll see the similarities here. And it's pretty simple, and we're going to get three, three simple words today, we need to, and they all start with S's because I like to alliterate. <clears throat> um, I do have Southern Baptist roots in me. So um, we like to serve, we need to serve, we need to sacrifice, and lastly, we need to sweat. I like that one, all right? Serve, sacrifice, and sweat. That's what we're going to do. Number one, serve, verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Now, we looked at last week that Paul made decisions in his life, right? He made deliberate decisions so that he was free to present the gospel to people. He made decisions that would not hinder the gospel from going forward through him. This is why he personally would talk about he didn't get remarried. We believe Paul was widowed. He didn't get remarried. Why he wouldn't eat certain things at certain times with certain people. Uh, why he wouldn't take money from the Corinthians even. They were kind of upset with him not taking their money. He did all of it so that he would not have a hindrance for the gospel. And now Paul takes it a step further. He says he uses this freedom he has in Christ. Right? He began chapter 9, verse 1. You can see there, am I not free? He uses that freedom, he says now, in our text in verse 19, to become a servant. Right? To become, literally the word is a slave to all so that they might come to know Christ. And th- this would have been crazy. Right? This is a Greek world he's in. Corinth, modern day city, by the way. Um, is 2,000 years ago he's writing. It's a Greek culture, a Greek world. And they would have thought it was crazy to hear this idea that you would use your freedom to become a slave. No one in their mind uh, chose to be a slave unless there was some kind of um, like financial hardship, right? Like, this is the only way I can do this. I'm going to have to go in into debt, as it were. I'm going to have to go in, I'm going to have to work as a slave to kind of work off my debt so that I can be back to being free again. No one would be free and choose to go in to be a slave, uh, they knew that the, the city of Corinth knew Paul very well. And they knew that he wasn't in financial hardship. I mean, they knew he wasn't taking money from the church. He didn't need it. He worked as a tent maker, we find in the book of Acts. Um, and so he was fine financially. Why would he enslave himself? Why would he commit, and this is what they called it, social death, right? To be a slave to them in Corinth was social death. Why would he do that, all right? And Paul did so, he says, in order to serve people, in order to invest in people. It wasn't for his advantage. It was, it, it was for the people of Corinth's advantage, right? It was for the people of Thessalonica's advantage. It was for the people of Athens' advantage. It was for wherever he went, it was for their advantage that he became a slave, a servant to them. Even the word he chooses is fascinating. The word, servant or slave, is used back in Acts 7 to refer to Israel's 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Can I give you a parallel there? Uh, the same word is used in Titus uh, chapter 2 to refer to the bondage of addiction. It's the same type of word. So to be a slave, in Paul's vernacular here, was to be an outsider with no rights of their own, to be completely immersed in the life and culture of another, to be completely at the service of another. Paul's like, I'm, I'm addicted to my mission field. I'm absorbed in it. I know it inside and out. I know the people. I know who I'm talking to and, and that, I, because I want to see them come to know Christ. I'll do anything, he says. And that's how Paul did missions. He willingly and strategically placed himself in the role of a servant, the role of a slave, to the lost because that was the best way to serve them the gospel. And it was the way Jesus did, too. Listen to this. Mark 10, verse 45, kind of Jesus' mission statement here. He said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? 
serve, right? And to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus' mission was not about his own comfort, right? Jesus' mission wasn't about his status or his advantage. Jesus' mission was about serving, which virtually every page of the Gospels uh, shows us. I mean, if you think about it, read the, the, the chapters, it, it had to be exhausting for Jesus. Every night he went to bed, the amount of people that he served, the amount of people he talked to, the play, I mean, just the steps he put in, right? If he had a Fitbit or something, it would have been like off the charts, the amount of steps this guy was putting in. And so he would, and he didn't just serve, it says here, he did more than that, right? He, he died for us, right? That, and that's unique. So you understand that sets Jesus apart from every other founder of any other religion, Right? Every other religion's mission uh, person was to solely live and kind of be an example. Jesus' mission was to serve and die. Death wasn't the sad end to Jesus' life. It was the culmination. Right? It was the mission. It was the purpose of it. And notice it says to give his life a ransom for many there, Mark 10, 45. A ransom for many. That's the language, that's the language of what we call substitutionary sacrifice. Okay? He literally died instead of us. The word means in place of us, right? That was our cross that Jesus bore. As a ransom, he bought our freedom, freedom from slavery, slavery to sin, slavery to death, slavery to, to hell, so that we would be a slave to others for his own sake and glory. But he had to die for us. Why did he have to do that? Because God loves us. Yes, it's one answer, but because, and this is important, listen to me, all, ch- all life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. All life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. Okay, follow me for a moment. I'm going to make the connection to our mission and what Paul is saying. If you love a person, think about how this works. If you love a person who has it all together, right? They aren't really, they aren't too needy. Doesn't really cost you very much, right? Cost you very little. It's pretty easy. Not too much sacrifice to be made. But if you ever try to love a person with a lot of emotional wounds, a lot of instability, someone who is very needy, that's a real sacrifice, right? That's really costly for us. If you have little ones, you know exactly what this is like, right? You have little, little children running around. They are very needy, okay? Matter of fact, they won't survive without you, right? And you have to pour your life in. This is why when I, I have a father, four kids, they're all older now. Um, but when they were little, uh, that's why I would come home from work. And like, literally, I came home, Sarah would be like, here, you hand me a baby and then go take a nap. <laughs> it's like, I need to nap. Or can we please have a conversation? I need adult conversation here because this is exhausting. I'm talking gaga and stuff all day long, right? I need to, I need to have a conversation. Um, and so it's exhausting. It's exhausting to pour yourself into someone who has tremendous needs. Tim Keller put it this way. This is really good. He said, there are a lot of wounded people out there. They're emotionally sinking. They're hurting, and they desperately need to be loved. And when they are with you, you want to look at your watch and make a graceful exit because listening to them with all their problems can be grueling. It can be exhausting to be a friend to an emotionally damaged person. The only way they're going to start filling up emotionally is if somebody loves them. And the only way to love them is to let yourself be emotionally drained. Some of your fullness is going to have to go into them. And you, ha- and you have to empty out to some degree. If you hold on to your emotional comfort and simply avoid those people, they will sink. The only way to love them is through substitutionary sacrifice. That's what Jesus did for us, right? That's what Paul strives to embody and what he's calling us to do. This is that part of that mission. When he says he became the slave to all people, that's what that meant. Being a slave on mission means you're interested in people. It means that you're interested in all people, even hurting people. It means you're ready to throw yourself into the interests of others. It means your life isn't about your comfort or your gaining or your advantage. 
It's about the comfort and gaining advantage of the other, right? It's, pour, it's, it's letting your fullness be poured out for the sake of someone else. It's entering into their world. That's what he's talking about. It's what it means to be sent as Jesus was sent. It's what it means to be served on mission. It's not just doing something nice for somebody. No, it's literally entering into their world, bearing their pain onto yourself. You're literally living out the gospel and doing that. And you're connecting with them and understanding them. So are you ready to serve? Are you ready to enter into the world and be this kind of incarnational way that Jesus was and Paul was? Are you ready to be poured out? Are you ready to look for benef- ways to benefit and help uh, and give advantage to someone else so that they can come to know Christ, know the gospel through you? All right, number one. Number two, sacrifice. Now, starting at verse 20, Paul uses this language about to the Jew I became a Jew and to the Greek I became a Greek. What is he talking about? Paul was a student of every culture he found himself in. As an apostle to the Gentiles, that's what he was, by the way. He was called the apostle to the Gentiles. I mean, you say, what's Gentile? A non-Jewish person, okay? Everyone outside of, of the Jewish world. He spent a great amount of time, as we see in the book of Acts, in different cities uh, who had a lot of different beliefs, by the way. Each city was different. They had different worldviews. They had different goals for their life. Each had vastly different hopes. They had different aspirations. They had different questions, right? Each, each city has different troubles, right? Different things going on. Uh, and each of them, he learned to sacrifice his time in order to learn about them, sacrifice his comfort to know their troubles, sacrifice certain freedoms in order that they might hear the gospel clearly and see the gospel clearly and know Jesus. Paul learned to enter into the world, right? Again, what did Jesus do? He entered into our world. He immersed himself, Paul did, into, into their world, tried to see with their eyes, hear with their ears, think with their mind. He's trying to understand their world. This is, again, what Jesus did for us, right? He didn't just seek to understand us. He literally became one of us. He became an insider rather than an outsider. Think about that. The gospel says God became an insider, not an outsider. He didn't stay out. He came in. That's what Paul's doing here. He, he went into their world. He embodied us. Jesus took on our skin, our eyes, and our ears, so I've told you before, as C.S. Lewis, Lewis said, that, that God wrote himself into our story, right? He was the author writing our story, but he wasn't content to be the author. He became a character, right? He entered into our story. He wrote himself in to our life. Let's consider what Paul meant when he says he, he was uh, to a Jew, he became a Jew. What does that mean? So in Jewish context, Paul says he would become a Jew as one under the law. Now, Paul, so you understand, was by ethnicity Jewish. But he was not religiously Jewish. Used to be, was not anymore. Read Acts 9, you'll see the difference, see what happened. There, he came to know Jesus. He stopped relying on his own righteousness to make him right with God. And so when he was around Jewish people who didn't know Jesus, he would become like them, he says. He would go under the law where he would, so he could have an audience, right? So he could talk to them. He would adapt certain lifestyles, certain languages uh, to better communicate the gospel. He knew if he didn't adopt those certain habits or enter into their world on some level, they would never hear him. He would never have an audience, so he had to enter in. You say, what did that look like for Paul? Well, for Paul, it probably meant he, he, uh, he observed Jewish festivals when he was with them. He observed certain traditions with them. He, he restricted his diet, right, on certain things. He probably, on, on Sabbath, he, he probably didn't work on Sabbath, right? Because, I mean, he, he can't work and be around the Jewish people on Sabbath. Like, he has to take that time off and be among them. Um, so he stopped eating the Baconator at Wendy's, right? And he switched to kosher hot dogs at Portillo's. I'm just trying to give you modern-day kind of ideas here, what he did. 
Um, he would quote the Old Testament scriptures like the author of Hebrews does. He would reference their culture and their practices and relate to them the gospel, right? We have a few examples of how he did this in Acts. Uh, one of them is in Acts 21. In Acts 21, Paul goes back to Jerusalem. And, uh, and he finds there are some rumors that have spread in Acts 21 in, in Jerusalem. There were some rumors that were spread among the Jews. And the rumors were basically Paul, Paul hates the law, right? Paul hates the law, uh, and they refuse to hear from him because he hates the law kind of idea. So Pastor James, he was like the pastor of Jerusalem Church at the time, um, comes up with an idea. Here it is, Acts 21, 23 to 24. Do therefore, uh, go therefore, do, do what I tell you, sorry, <laughs> I'm trying to read this. Do therefore what we tell you. There we go. We have four men who are under a vow, okay? These four guys, these apparently aren't, aren't Christians, they're just Jewish men. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, pay their expenses so that they may, so they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in, what they have been, nothing in what they have been told about you. So basically this will help solve the rumors and give you an audience again. You say, what's going on? So Pastor James is basically saying this. Hey, I've got these four Jewish guys. They're under a vow. They are serious about the law, right? They're super serious. Why don't you go join them kind of idea? You know, take them to sports clips, right? Pay to get their hair cut. Um, and the passage goes on to say that Paul did just that. He spent a couple of days with these four guys. He lived among them for four days. He shaved his own head. Um, he paid for these guys to get a haircut. And then he went out and bought them all gifts so they could use those as an offering at the temple. Like he, he went out of his way, right? Cost him money, cost him time, all those things. Uh, cost him his hair, right? It cost him a lot of stuff so that he could earn an audience with the Jewish people, right? That's, that's what I mean by sacrificing. He, he gave up some of his freedoms to do that. Then there's this one. This one's kind of crazy. Acts 16. Acts 16, 1 through 3. Paul um, <clears throat> says here he met a disciple there named Timothy. So he's getting, he's getting, he met a guy named Timothy. He's in a Jewish context. Timothy was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Uh, he was well spoken of by the brothers of Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Crazy story, all right? This story is where Paul first meets Timothy. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, there are books called First Timothy, Second Timothy. Same guy. This is where Paul first met him. And Paul had a mission he wanted to reach. He wanted to reach people. Um, Unfortunately, with Timothy, he had a, he had a Gentile dad, um, and that meant what that meant for the Jewish people. That meant clearly he was not circumcised like all the other Jewish men would have been, even though he had a Jewish mother. And Paul wants to go reach Jewish people, and he wants to take Timothy alongside of him because Paul wants to mentor him, right, and disciple him, and bring him on mission so he can hand the torch off and show Timothy how it's done, kind of thing. The Jews didn't like Gentiles, right, and they wouldn't hear from Gentiles. The only way they would hear from a Gentile. The only way they would listen to him is if he became a God-fearer. Sometimes you'll see that language in the book of Acts. That man is a Gentile who converted, at least over to Judaism, specifically by being circumcised. So, <laughs> I try to imagine this conversation. Paul goes to Timothy and is like, okay, we're going to have to do this. Uh, go get a rabbi and a sharp flint knife, right? And I'm sure, um, I'm sure Timothy's like, Can, can't you disciple me another way? <laughs> Aren't you the apostle to the Gentiles? Like, can we go, let's just go to the Gentiles. They need Jesus too. And Paul's like, hey, following Jesus is going to require sacrifice. And so you're going to have to sacrifice some skin. And so he did. Uh, and I really made a lot of guys uneasy with that one. Um, but Paul had, he had Timothy sacri uh, sacrifice. He didn't sacrifice, I'm sorry. Uh, probably felt like sacrifice. Um, circumcised. 
And I'm sure the Jewish men are like, okay. And that's what they're like, fine. And it goes on to tell that they, they heard him out because he, he went through this, this whole process. Um, and so this surely cost Paul some time, probably cost him some money because I imagine Timothy going like, you owe me one for this one. Um, but he was willing to do whatever it took, right? Whatever it takes. Okay, I need to do that for you to hear the gospel. Okay, I'll, 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 do, I'll at least have my buddy do that <laughs> kind of thing, right? We'll go. That's what it meant by being a, being a Jew. To the Jew, I became a Jew. Now, to the Greek, what did that look like? He says, for those outside the law, he became one outside the law. So the Greeks, they didn't obey the Mosaic law. That's what he's talking about. The law in the Old Testament. Go read like Deuteronomy, that kind of stuff. And they probably didn't even know it very well. So if Paul, think about this. If Paul would have gone into places like Athens or places like Corinth that we're reading here and not worked on the Sabbath, right? He, if he would have not eaten meals because of Jewish dietary restrictions, if he would have talked to them in Hebrew language, right? They would have thought a couple of things. One, this is one strange dude, right? Number two, he's just a Jewish guy trying to keep up with his traditions. And worst of all, number three, they would think that the gospel that he was proclaiming was that everyone needed to become Jewish and they needed to obey the Mosaic law, right? That's what he would have been communicating by his actions. Instead, when Paul went to a Greek culture, again, he became an insider. He sacrificed time to learn and to listen to them, uh, he went into Athens, for example, in Acts 17. He spoke their language. He spoke Greek to them. Um, he quoted to them their own authors and poets. Go read Acts 17. You find he even was familiar with what they were reading or what they were thinking and what their worldview was. Um, he even didn't appeal necessarily to the Old Testament because they didn't know it. Instead, he appealed there to creation because they all knew creation. And so Paul used creation to, to talk to them about God as a creator, right? He even spent time walking around their city trying to understand it, came across this this, this temple to an unknown God, and he used that. He's like, okay, you guys have a God you don't know. Let me tell you about one that you should know, right? Uh, the only one you should know, um, the only one that exists. And so he, he used what he saw in their culture to communicate to them. Listen to what he said to the uh, Galatians. These were Gentile Christians. Galatians 4.12, brothers, I entreat you, uh, become as I am, for I also have become as you so as a, as a Jewish man, Paul became like them. What did that mean? He incarnated the gospel. When he came into town, he didn't just say, hey, guys, don't you be like me, and he preached to them. He told them truth, but he became like them in every way permissible by Jesus. He got involved in their lives. He got down on their level. He understood their culture, their practices, adopted certain cultural patterns, all for the sake of conveying a clear gospel presentation, it's not just in words, but in life. And in doing so, he helped them see what it was like to follow Jesus. You understand that, right? He helped them see, like, in living their life, living among them as a follower of Jesus, they got to see, okay, this is what, if, if the gospel takes root in my life, this is what it's going to look like, right? This is what life looks like following Jesus in my culture. They understood it. They saw it. You say, how far do we go then? We go as far as we can, as Paul says here, while still being under the law of Christ. You say, what, what is that? We talked about that a few weeks ago, right? It's going as far as we can while still loving Jesus and still loving others. Paul's not talking about compromise. He's not talking about throw everything out and we can just do anything. He already mentioned this letter in the book of Corinthians. He's already told the Corinthians, hey, you need to avoid uh, certain practices, right? You need to avoid sexual immorality. You need to avoid greed. There are certain things that are antithetical to being a Christian that you can't enter into. There are certain things that as Christians we have to flat out just reject. We can't go in there. Right? We don't have Christian drug addicts. Right? We don't have Christian meth users for Christ. 
You know, Paul didn't say to the crackheads, I became a crackhead, right? That, that, that's not quite the level we're talking about, right? You don't have Christian axe murderers. We may have Christian axe throwers, um, <laughs> but not Christian axe murderers, which kind of, kind of going across to the murder side there, it looks like. But um, so this... So that's what Paul's saying, right? He's like, there's certain things. I got to still stay in the law of Christ, right? I have certain areas. I'll enter into them, but I can't become those things. I can reach those people, but there are certain things that I I can't do. So this passage means, practically, we got to go to the drawing board. We got to go back and read our Bibles, study our mission field, and figure out how can we come to know unbelievers in their world? How can we really know the gospel, and how can we really communicate it well to them? The gospel does not belong, guys, to any particular culture. You understand that, right? Methods, are, they're changeable, right? The gospel is not changeable. Methods are limited. The gospel is not, right? The methods can, are able to be adapted. The gospel is not. Methods are, are cultural. The gospel is not cultural. That's where we find the definition of ministry. You define your ministry by not adapting too little or too much to the culture around you. That's where you, you define, okay, that's where ministry is. That's where I need to be, right there at that line. Not adapting too much. Not adapting too little, right? I need to go in, but not too far. There's a story by um, a British missionary named Leslie Newbigin. He went, to, he went to India. He was from England, from the UK, uh, around 1950. So if you're familiar with, with culture, history, 1950, England, still pretty uh, religious, pretty Christian in its, in its uh, kind of culture. Um, and there he left and went to India, never came back. Didn't come back for sabbatical or anything like that. Like he stayed there during that time. Uh, he was involved with a church there in India, living on mission, getting to know the people of India, right, and working in that, that context. He returned to India 30 years later, 1950, comes back 1980. Now, if you know anything about history, England radically changed <laughs> during those 30 years, right? It was a big shift. Um, he discovered, and when he came back, that the church in England now also existed in a non-Christian culture. When he left, it was in a Christian culture. When he came back in 30 years, it was a non-Christian culture. And this is what he wrote about. He said, the problem was not that the culture changed, he said. It was the church didn't change its methods at all. And though people in England stopped going to church and they stopped speaking of Christianity in public, the church went along with business as usual, he said. They didn't become missional. They they operated like they were still in a Christian culture, hoping that non-Christians would just come knock on their doors. And they weren't going to come knock anymore. But they just kept going like they'd always done. So they failed to see the culture the culture change and see themselves as missionaries, right? And missionaries always studying their culture. The culture had changed. The questions, the questions had changed too. People were asking different things in 1980 about reality and life and death and God than they were in 1950. They were asking different questions. And the church didn't budge. And the result was that Christianity became more and more privatized and more and more detached from the broader culture. And it was just over, I was just over this past year, and if you've been over there, you know what this is like. The church buildings, for the most part, are now restaurants, laundromats, art venues, like, you name it, they're anything but churches anymore. They've died, right? It's the same thing, we're just like 50 years behind, by the way. We're doing the same, we're on the same trajectory as England, you, what's happening in Europe is happening here in the same context, right? And so they, they, they died, and the church will die here too if we don't take the mission of Jesus seriously and begin to engage the lost. The culture has changed. It is not the same in 2020 than it was in 1950, okay? It's very, 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 very different, and we've got to go to them. They're not coming to us, right? That's what Paul did. 
and what we need to do, right? This is that getting, getting the gospel in there. We need to give people answers. We, we use the word sometimes contextualize. And what we mean by that is we're giving people God's answers, which they may not want, <laughs> to the questions that they're asking and in forms that they can understand, right? That's what we're trying to do. We're just trying, how can we communicate it in a way that they understand it? It's not about changing the message. It is, though, about changing the messengers. It's not about changing the message. It's about changing the messengers, right? We change our approach. We change some of the decisions that we're making. Paul never changed the message. You can go throughout the Gospels, his letters, and, um, you can go through his letters, you can go through the book of Acts. He never changed the message. It was always the same, but it always was approached differently, right? In different contexts. Um, all this means that Paul is not concerned about staying in his comfort zone, but about overcoming artificial barriers, inhibiting those who have not yet responded to the gospel. And this was costly for Paul. It took a lot of work, right? It required a lot of versatility, some sensitivity. It often led to a lot of suffering for him. Um, but you're not going to be an agent of change in someone's life if you don't become part of their life. You can't stand at a distance and, and preach at them from a distance without entering into their world. You'll never be an agent of change in their life. When you approach the mission of Jesus and go, you know what, Let, let's throw out any preconceived ideas, right? Let's, let's read our Bibles. Let's go as far as we can to reach the lost. Now we're starting to show that we understand the gospel because we're not concerned about our own reputation. We're not concerned about us being religious people. We're concerned about the gospel and people who don't know Jesus, so we're going to enter in. So here's the question. Here, here's how you know. You say, are you doing that? Let me ask you some questions. Do you feel the deepest hopes and aspirations of your unbelieving neighbors? Do you know the questions that they're asking? Do you know what problems they have with Christianity? Do you know what idols they're holding on to? They're failing them. What are, you, what, are they, what are they leaning on for life that will ultimately fail them? Can you communicate the gospel to people so they understand it, right? Or are you so detached, so entrenched in your Christian bubble that you have no clue what the hopes, fears, struggles, and questions of unbelievers are around you. That's how you know. Are you entering in? You know those things. So how are you going to enter in, right? How are you going to enter into that? Where, where are you going to go? What do you need to sacrifice? What hobbies, what interests maybe you have that will allow you to connect with others, okay? And I'm not just telling you to do this. I'm telling myself to do this, right? You probably think this is funny, but it is my world, right? I, I joined the bowling league on Friday. I just walked over to the bowling alley and said, you know what? I am sick and tired of sitting in a Christian bubble, and I'm going to go meet people. And I had two prayers, and this is probably... For some of you, this may be offensive, but that's okay. Um, my two prayers, number one, God, make them lost. Like, I need lost people. I, I, don't, I don't want Christian. This is not my goal. I'm not taking a Friday night out for my family to go hang out with other Christians. No big deal. I'm not saying it's wrong. That's not my mission right now. I got them. It's good. They're unbelievers. <clears throat> and, uh, and number two, I found that out pretty quick. I was asking, I just asked a bunch of questions. Number two, my other question I, uh, a prayer I asked is, God, please, can you make, make me somewhat relatable? I know to the Jew, I had to become a Jew. To the Greek, I became a Greek. But if they're rednecks, I'm going to have a really hard time. Like, that's just really, uh, I need to do that. I know. I know I need to. It's just not me. Um, but I'll do it if you need me to. So I was, I was ready to be stretched on that one. But that's my prayer. My prayer is you get to meet them soon. All right? That's my goal. I mean, I'm on the team. I'm like jumped in randomly, no, didn't know anybody. But that's what I'm saying. Like, what can you do? What can you jump in to get to know unbelievers around you? What interests, hobbies, things you have that you can jump into that world? <laughs> Lastly, number three, sweat. All right? Sweat is our, our last one here. Verse 24, Paul goes on to this uh, kind of race thing. He, he start, starts talking about it. He says, do you not know? Now, the reason he says that is because they would have known very well about the image he's bringing up here about running and boxing because they hosted, if you remember we talked about this, in Corinthians, um, they hosted these, um, these games that they had. And these games, 
um, these Isthmian games, uh, which attracted thousands of visitors every year. They would have every other year, and so they knew. And the main, main two, two games they played was boxing and running, right? And that's what Paul brings up here. That's why they know. And so he talks about here, and, and unfortunately, a lot of times these verses are well-known uh, in the Christian world and often used to talk about the need to discipline our lives as, in the Christian life, to run the Christian life, right? We need discipline to run the Christian life. That principle is true. That's not what Paul's getting at, right? His point is that discipline is essential, not in our progress in our Christian life, but in our mission to the world. Being on missions, specifically staying on mission, is going to be hard. It's going to require blood, sweat, and tears, right? This is what he's talking about. And so, um, so he talks about that. Now, why do we need discipline for mission? Why? Because it's easier to retreat. <laughs> it's easier to retreat. It's easier to, to retreat into a safe enclave instead of staying in those relationships, staying in the world. It's easier to stay out of the world and keep our distance. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of intentionality to know one's neighbors and the broader culture, to feel their hopes and discern their questions. It requires discipline, just like everyone else in our lives, everything else in our lives does. So we cannot expect to be on mission well, to witness well, without a tremendous amount of effort, just like an athlete can't expect to succeed if they don't train. That's kind of the, the point he's making, right? To start the couch to 5K, you have to get off the couch, right? That's kind of how that works. You've got to move. Paul says in verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control here. Self-control is the idea, the word means to be self-commanded. It's a synonym, actually, for the word to be free. To be out of control is to be under the control of something or someone else, right? So Paul wants to be disciplined, so he's free. In other words, if we aren't disciplined, and this is where that application does come in, if we're not disciplined spiritually, if we don't control our passions, if we don't push in to know and love Jesus more, if we don't jump into community and practice the one another as the Bible calls us to, then we're going to be stuck and not free, right? We're not free in that way to give our all to reach the lost because we're too busy picking up all the broken pieces. We're too busy picking up, picking up our broken lives, our broken marriages, and we don't have the, the energy and time to go out. That's why he says we've got to be disciplined, right? We've got to work on our lives, yes. That's why Paul labored to teach uh, us the importance of, in this book, he talks about personal holiness, the importance of strong marriages, the importance of, we'll talk about next week, repenting of idols, uh, the importance of loving one another. Those things aren't an end in themselves, Right? That's not the mission. Do you understand that, right? That's not the mission. The mission in your life is not, I just need a strong marriage. You need a strong marriage so that you can get on mission. Okay? That's, the, that's the goal of that. Uh, we, we, those things we, we work on so that we're free to run the race of reaching the lost and diving in. And notice he says here that they run for a perishable wreath. Um, <laughs> looking it up this week, it was a, their, their perishable wreath literally was a crown woven out of withered celery. Sounds pretty cool, right? It literally was dead when they put it on their head. Um, it didn't last. Right? Even though they ran for maybe more than the withered celery, right? They ran for fame or acclaim or pride or whatever it was. They were all just as perishable as that wreath. That's why he talks about a perishable wreath. As Christians, we get to run the mission for something imperishable, which I'm going to get to in just a second. But look down at verse 26. He says, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. Okay, so here he says, he, he, he talks about the word aimlessly is to run with uncertainty. It's to run with no fixed goal, right? No end in sight. That's what that, he said. I don't run aimlessly. You know, I don't run like Forrest Gump. You know, Forrest Gump, that's how he ran. Actually, I have a quote from Forrest Gump. Listen, that day, hold on. <clears throat> See if I can read this the way he would say it. I do have roots in Mobile, Alabama, by the way. Um, that day, for no particular reason, I decided to go for a little run. So I ran to the end of the road. 
And when I got there, I thought maybe I'd run to the end of the town. And when I got there, I thought maybe I'd just run across Greenbow County. And I figured since I ran this far, maybe I'd just run across the great state of Alabama. And that's what I did. I ran clear across Alabama for no particular reason. I just kept on going. I ran clear to the ocean. And when I got there, I figured, well, since I've gone this far, I might as well turn around and keep on going. And when I got to another ocean, I figured, since I've gone this far, I might as well turn back and just keep right on going, right? Just keep going. It was aimless running. It's like, why? Are, I don't know. I'm just kind of running. And Paul's like, that's not my mission. I want to be very, very targeted, very strategic, right? I want to run with a goal in mind. That's what Jesus and Paul did, right? They gave it their all. They sweat. They worked hard, but it was for a purpose. It was a mission. Paul was very deliberate in his mission. He again, studied the culture. He asked questions. He listened to people. He sacrificed his time, his energy, his money, so he could have an audience for the gospel. And then Paul switches over here to boxing. He says, oh, box, hit in the air. What's he talking about there? He says he doesn't get in the ring and get struck 19 times like Donald Cerrone did um, by Conor McGregor and not land a punch, right? He said that's not the mission. It's not the goal. He wasn't satisfied by just getting in the ring, getting beat up, right? He wanted to win. He wanted to get in the, get in the ring and win. Matter of fact, I thought it was interesting after that fight. You may even know what I'm talking about. But Conor McGregor said after the fight, he says, it was good to get back, in the, get, get back out there and, and to feel that again. I did great work at camp. I pushed myself so hard, I had to hold myself back sometimes. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what Paul was saying. Paul's like Scrappy-Doo. Remember Scrappy-Doo? Let me at him, let me at him, let me at him, right? That's, that was Paul. It's like, I got, you got to let me go. I got to get out there kind of thing. Language also means that Paul was not content to shadow box. Shadow box is just punching the air, right? Uh, he, in other words, he doesn't, he doesn't just practice. He doesn't just learn. He doesn't just sit on the sidelines and gather information while the other followers of Jesus are on, on mission. He gets in the ring. He gets on the court. He gets on the field. He understands, like, you know, sports, there's a lot of film time, right? Studying. Not only your plays, but the plays of your opponent, right? This is how this works. Game, game film's important is what Paul is saying, kind of idea, right? Game film's important. Classroom time is important. We need a plan. We need to know our plan. We need to learn our mission field. But it has to be with the goal of all of that so that we get on the field, so we play well, right? That's the mission. Uh, so many Christians learn Bible information, right? They gather it in like chipmunks, you know, in their cheeks, and they run around. They've got it all there, but they don't know what to do with it. They're like, they're like the dog that finally catches the uh, fire engine. You're like the, the, the fire truck. And you're like, what am I going to do with it? Now I got it, right? It's like we, we got the gospel, but what are we doing with it, right? We got the information, well, what are we doing with it, right? That's what Paul is saying. We, gotta, we don't just use it to practice. We use it to get on the field and play. So that's why he says in verse 27, he says, uh, I discipline my body, keep it under control. The word there literally means to give himself a black eye. Paul says he's working so hard. He disciplines his body so hard. It means to hit under the eye. <laughs> it takes effort, he says, right? It, it's hard work. Um, that's what he's talking about. And he says, so that he won't be disqualified. What does that mean? The word disqualified literally means to be shown to be a counterfeit. To be shown to be a counterfeit. What is he saying? Guys, there are people who prepare, train, sweat, work hard, but don't ever get in the game, right? They shadow box. They, you learn biblical stories and facts. You absorb a lot of knowledge of the game. You know the Bible inside and out, but you don't ever get into the game. You know what that was like? That was the Pharisees. A lot of practice, a lot of knowledge, a lot of information, but they didn't get in the game. Remember, they saw, but they didn't see. They knew, but they, they didn't know, right? They weren't, they, weren't on, they weren't on the mission. 
And this is, this is the kind of people that Jesus would say in, John, in uh, Matthew 7. He would say, look, I, you did all these great things. It's wonderful, but I never knew you, right, at the end. Listen, if you want to play church, if you want to know biblical facts to feel better about yourself and have a cultural Christianity and not pursue the loss and not get on mission, then there is, a, what Paul is saying, there's a distinct possibility that you don't even know the gospel, that you don't even know Jesus. To be a Christian is to be like Jesus, and Jesus pursued the lost people. He got down on their level. He embodied our lives. He rubs shoulders with us, and he calls us to do the same. So you have to be honest about the question. Do you really care that people are lost, broken, and hurting, and going to hell? Do you care? If you don't, maybe a good indication, you don't know Jesus. I don't care what you say, okay? So we need to apply this, this, this passage. We need to apply the Midwestern work ethic, right? That we work hard on stuff. That's great. Let's work hard on mission. Let's work hard on getting people to come know Christ. Right? We need to live for the imperishable wreath that he's talking about here. What is that? Look back at verse 23. I skipped that one because I want to end with that one. I do it all, he says, for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. The language is literally this. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in it. Not in its blessings, but in the gospel itself with them. Who are them? Who, who is this them? It's unbelievers. It is to share what we already have the goal, Paul says, isn't converts. The goal isn't winning arguments, but standing side by side with our unbelieving friends and neighbors, sharing the, sharing the gospel with them that saved us, right? It's standing alongside them, have them join in with us. I think that's what Jesus gets at in Luke 16 when he says, uh, verse 9, I tell you, make friends for yourselves with means of unrighteous wealth. Like, use money, use whatever you got, so that when it fails, which it will, that they may receive you into their eternal dwellings. Right? So they can share with you. You can join with them. As I said, start this morning, when you really love something, you want to share it. You see a good movie, you want other people to watch it with you. You go to a good restaurant, you want them to go with you and eat there. You hear good music, you want them to hear it. Same with the gospel. If you have tasted the joys of the gospel, being forgiven by Christ, then you want others to taste that as well. We have a Savior who didn't come to be served, guys. He, he served us. We have a Savior who didn't come to get a little uncomfortable and sacrifice a little bit of his time. We have a Savior who sacrificed his own life for us. We have a Savior who didn't just put in a little effort, right? A little bit of here, a little bit there. We have a Savior who sweat drops of blood and lived the life we couldn't live and then died a death we should have died to save us. That is the mission. That's what it requires of us, and it is hard. That's what we talked about last week, counting the cost, right? It's like, okay, this is what I'm signing up for. If I'm following Jesus, this is what it's going to cost me. It's going to cost me. So we go to communion. If you're a Christian, we go there, and we have bread, and we have juice. And we do that to remember the body and blood of Jesus broken and poured out for us. We do it in remembrance of him. So as we have some quiet time, we reflect on these questions. We reflect on this passage. How, does, how is the Holy Spirit speaking to you, right? If you're a follower of Christ, you've got the Holy Spirit inside of you. How is he speaking to you? What, is, what are the ways, what are things? Maybe it's just a prayer right now, quiet in your heart to God and be like, God, just give me, help me find some ways. I don't know any unbelievers in my life. I don't, I'm not connected. Uh, I don't want to talk to them if I do have them around me. Get, help me, right? Give me boldness. Um, help, me, help me be interested in them. Help me love them, talk to them, ask them questions. Um, as we take that quiet time, as you're ready, if you're ready, you may come forward, take that. Uh, we have to give our offerings as well as, as followers of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Uh, the passage is super convicting, I know. It is was for me too. And um, I pray, God, that, uh, that, Lord, you would help us to get moving. 
we've, we've uh, like I said last week, we made a lot of changes. Uh, we've right, righted the ship, as it were, gotten things in order, our house in order, and yet, God, we need to move. We need to go forward as a church. I pray, God, that you would enable us to do the, just, just that. Give us creativity. Give us understanding. Give us empathy and love um, for people who don't know Christ. Uh, move us out, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.